Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. If you are new here, welcome. And if you are a regular listener, we appreciate you and welcome back. We just had our biggest week ever for the podcast with over 14,200 downloads. This is both like crazy and amazing, surreal and unreal at the same time. So from both of us, a sincere thank you. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, mortgage agent, and just a normal guy that loves real estate so much that I have agreed to sit around twice a week and talk about it with my good friend, Daniel Foch. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I am uh, also a real estate investor. I'm a real estate broker as well, a analyst in a public capacity, and I join Nick twice a week to talk about all things real estate. Yes, you do. And you do a damn good job at it. And we have some exciting stuff going on right now as well. We're looking at a few larger multifamilies that we're trying to add to our portfolio dance. So we're getting some deals done on the weekend as we do in uh, in the world of real estate. Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with those deals. But uh, let's jump into today's episode. I think it's time to review our quarterly monetary policy report from the Bank of Canada. Yes, sir. And for those of you who haven't heard our other episodes we've done where we cover this and are wondering what is a monetary policy report and why it's important to real estate investing, here's a quick reminder. So the quarterly report of the Bank of Canada's Governing Council presenting the bank's base case projection for inflation and the growth of the Canadian economy, as well as its assessment of risks upcoming. These reports are released quarterly by central banks around the world, including notable ones like our neighbors to the south, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, and many more. So the Bank of Canada is a crown corporation and Canada's central bank. It was chartered in 1934 under the Bank of Canada Act, and it is responsible for formulating Canada's monetary policy and for the promotion of a safe and sound financial system within Canada. Safe and sound. Well, I like the sounds of that. So let's dive right in. We'll start with an overview of the entire policy. Then we'll jump into some highlights and some really more relevant topics for all of our listeners, which are probably all concerned about one thing, real estate investing. Dan, start us off with the uh, with the overview here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think contextually as well, you know, it's pretty uncommon that we have... Um, people buying real estate without debt. And so the Bank of Canada really, even though bond yields are the primary mechanism controlling the interest rates that's used most by um, real estate investors right now, which is a f um, the five-year fixed mortgage, um, the Bank of Canada kind of controls debt and pr um, pricing of debt thereafter. And so this is why it matters what their perspective is, because it can kind of give you a perspective on what the windows of opportunity might be over the next little while. We know, we aren't really market timing kind of guys, but you know, it is worth knowing, okay, yeah, like, you know, we're seeing prices rise in the spring market right now in, in most cities in Canada. And a lot of people might be saying, oh, I got to rush in and buy something. But if the Bank of Canada is forecasting, you know, maybe a recession, as an example, it might be able to exercise a little bit more patience by saying, yeah, maybe I'll have a better opportunity between now and the end of the year. So 
without further yeah. ado. Good call. What's that? What's that old saying that's that's beaten to death? It's not timing the market; it's time in the market. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the so the report starts by saying global inflation is coming down, but core inflation in major economies is proving to be persistent. Central banks continue to see this and need to maintain restrictive monetary policy to achieve the inflation targets that they've set out. Now, here's a reminder. Core inflation is the change in the cost of goods and services, but does not include those from the food or energy sectors. So I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. We've seen both food, energy, gas go through the roof. So food and energy prices are exempt from this calculation because their prices can be too volatile or fluctuate wildly. So um, again, I think that's something we've all experienced. So this restrictive monetary policy and to a much lesser extent, stress in the banking sector are anticipated to constrain global growth through 2023 and the first half of 2024. Growth is then projected to pick up in 2025 as the effects of policy tightening fade. Now, in Canada, the CPI or Consumer Price Index inflation is expected to come down to around 3% in the middle of 2023. So actually, we're a few months away from that, which we should all be looking forward to. And then decline more gradually, reaching that target 2% by the end of 2024. Now, a reminder, inflation measured by CPI, Consumer Price Index, is defined as the change in the price of a basket of goods and services that are typically purchased by specific groups of households. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it is pretty interesting. The The base effect alone will probably get us down to that 3% target. Um, for those of you who don't know what a base effect is, it's basically the effect that choosing a different reference point for a comparison between two data points can have a, have an impact on the result of the comparison. So, um, you know, inflation really ramped up high last year or at the beginning. And um, comparing to that, that period of, of that high ramp up year over year, makes it um, a much smaller impact when you look at it from that year to this year. So the base year, um, you know, there's, and, it, and it, I would say the base effect probably occurs most often in inflation. So the base effect can lead to an apparent under or overstatement of figures, especially inflation. Um, you know, inflation is often expressed as a month over month figure, year over year figure. So tip, typically economists and consumers want to know how much higher or lower prices are today than they were one year ago. But in a month with which inflation spikes may produce an opposite effect a year later, essentially creating the impression that inflation has slowed. Um, so that, you know, just because inflation is slowing doesn't mean goods are going down. We're seeing disinflation, which is the slowing of inflation, not deflation. Um, Goods price inflation is easing quickly, reflecting lower energy prices, improved global supply chains, and the effects of restrictive monetary policy on sectors sensitive to interest rates. Inflation is then forecast to return to the rest of the way to the 2% target more gradually because service service price inflation is responding more slowly to the effects of restrictive monetary policy. Demand in Canada still exceeds supply. And I think probably immigration is going to make that continue realistically because you have more and more people consuming, more and more people contributing to the demand, and the labor market remains tight. 
Although the slowing economy and increasing labor supply are helping relieve some of its tightness, the labor market is still above maximum maximum sustainable employment. Now, economic growth is expected to be subdued through the remainder of this year with the economy moving into excess supply in the second half and then to pick up gradually through next year, 2024. Here we have strong population growth is supporting aggregate consumption and employment growth. Household spending is being restrained by higher interest rates, though. At the current interest rates, the share of income spent on interest payments will continue to rise as homeowners renew their mortgages now and over the course of the next few years. And we've talked about this in many other episodes. What happens that, you know, we've seen variable in the Bank of Canada's overnight rate um, increase drastically. Well, this is going to have an effect on everybody that has to renew their mortgage over the next couple of years. Now, growth in business investments and exports is also expected to soften, reflecting increased borrowing costs and a weaker foreign demand. So not great there. With slow growth in Canada over the next several quarters, the Bank of Canada anticipates near-term inflation expectations to decline, service price inflation and wage growth to moderate, and the pricing behavior of businesses to normalize. As these things happen, domestic price pressures will ease further, returning inflation gradually to that 2% target. On an, ad, on an annual average basis, growth in GDP, gross domestic product in Canada is projected to be 1.4% this year and 1.3% next year in 2024. As the economy adjusts to higher interest rates and inflation returns to that 2% target, GDP growth is projected to pick back up in 2025, reaching 2.5%, so adding 1.2%, a full 1.2% after 2024. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, that is a real recession, right? Like if you if you look at the, if, if inflation is running at 4%, 3%, whatever, and the GDP is growing at a lower rate than that, then in real terms, so adjusted for inflation, we'll be in a recession basically for the whole year, just as a point of context, um, you know, and that was a great overview, but I think there are a few sections we kind of want to take a deep dive on because they are more relevant to real estate investors, um, especially the mortgage rates and housing market pieces. Let's dive into those. So I'll start off here with uh, the impact of higher mortgage rates, um, which I'm sure we all, every single person listening probably has an anecdote to themselves personally or someone they know that is, um, that's, you know, going through a bit of a rough patch because of the impact of these higher mortgage rates. Um, one way monetary policy affects inflation is through its impact on household borrowing. When interest rates rise, higher debt servicing costs leave many households with less money for other spending. This slows overall demand growth, which in turn relieves prices, pressures, and helps bring down inflation. Household debt comes in many forms, including mortgages, home equity lines of credit, unsecured lines of credit, and loans for motor vehicles, and more. In 2022, mortgages came up more than half, sorry, made up more than a half of households' total debt service payments. Now, so just a reminder, TDS, very common term in the mortgage world, total debt service. 
which is your total debt obligation divided by your gross income. It's a financial metric that most lenders, if not all lenders, use to determine whether or not they can extend you credit. And again, this is a primarily a metric used in the mortgage industry to calculate the percentage of a prospective borrower's gross income already committed to debt obligations. Lenders consider all required payments for both housing and non-housing bills. So the housing factor in the TDS calculation includes everything paid for the home from mortgage payments, real estate taxes, homeowners insurance, any other kind of association and dues. So like strata, um, condo fees and utilities. The non-housing factor includes everything else from auto loans, student loans, credit card payments, child support, alimony, etc. So to calculate TDS, first add up all your monthly debt obligations, then divide that total by the gross monthly income in that percentage formula. So it's debt divided by income multiplied by 100. A good TDS ratio is usually 43% or below to maintain, uh, to sorry, to obtain a mortgage. But many lenders are now getting stricter and have put the benchmark TDS ratios at closer to 36%. Yeah, and I think that a big portion of that also comes from, you know, the the principle that housing is considered affordable if it's closer to that thirty percent range, and so exactly, yeah. Um, so when interest rates rise or fall, interest rate payments on variable rate mortgages respond quickly. In contrast, interest payments on fixed rate mortgages respond much more slowly because they adjust only to prevailing rates when households take out a new mortgage or renew an existing one. And this is where you kind of get to that theme of time under tension, right? How long do we have to spend at this in this new rate environment for it to become too painful? You know, time under tension is a working out term, right? It's like you want to you want to <laughs> hold, hold the weights for a long enough period of time that it tears the muscle muscle fascia, right? Um, and you know, that, that gets you jacked in the fullness of time. It helps you grow, but it, it, you grow because as a result of suffering in the period of, for the period of time. And the question is, you know, you hear a lot about this higher for longer kind of thing. How long are rates going to stay this high where it makes, you know, it continues to perpetuate those problems because every, every year that goes by, you have a new portion of the economy having to renew their mortgage at these new higher rates, right? The average loan to value in the market right now is 3.5% or sorry, not loan to value. Average interest rate in the market right now is 3.5% or something. If everybody has to renew at 4.5 or 5.5, you start seeing sustained economic stress as a result of this. So remember for a variable rate mortgage with variable payments, the size of regular payments fluctuates as the prime interest rate changes. The prime rate in Canada today, April 24th is 6.7%. And I think it's interesting, something like 20% of bank mortgages right now, like all chartered bank mortgages are actually reverse amortizing. So they're actually like, so their their payments have gone up so much or their their interest rate has gone up so much on these variable rates that um, they basically have to, or they're, they're not even, their, their monthly payment isn't big enough to cover all of the interest. And so, I mean, this is a big problem, but 20% of mortgages on average for the big five banks are, are in that position right now, where basically people's monthly payments aren't big enough to cover the mortgages. So they're just adding it to principle. The bank, the, the government basically just gave them carte blanche to accommodate everybody. So the, like, we're really doing everything we can right now to kind of put a floor in the housing market because we did see, you know, big, big drop in price last year. 
Well, we got to put a floor on it now because we took the ceiling off for the last two years. Yeah, right? exactly. Somebody who's listening to too much Lil Wayne, no ceilings. <laughs> um, okay, so all, all great points, Dan. And, and, you know, this points a lot to the next section that we're going to talk about here, which is changes in borrowing behavior, which speaks a lot to consumer sentiment, which, which we'll get to. Um, so to mitigate an increase in their interest costs, borrowers may take several courses of action. Those with enough resources could pay off some of their outstanding mortgage balance or make payments to their principal more quickly. Now, again, this totally depends on what kind of mortgage product you have. So speak to your bank, speak to your lender, speak to your mortgage agent or broker and figure out if you can make those lump sum payments. Now, financially constrained households, which probably makes up more of the population than uh, the ability than the people that are have the ability to you know go pay off lump sums, um, may scale back on voluntary repayments of principal, or here we go, Dan, extend that amortization period of their mortgage when they renew. Now, again, that is a that's a dangerous thing. You know, I, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy, like, you know, having a tiny little bit of butter and you got to butter a whole loaf of bread. Like it's, it's just not, you're scraping too thin. You're yeah, just extending each time you, your- Each time you go right? back, you take less butter. Yeah, yeah. now you're eating dry toast. So <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's a great analogy, but- No, it's probably <laughs> but, not. <laughs> but, but it's making me hungry. I'm fasting right now. So, um, you know, it, it is- funny from my perspective like to the the where you say and mechanically this is important to think about as an investor like this is why you don't buy bad investments um it you can like you're saying that people uh may scale back on repayments or extend the amortization of their mortgage when they renew i think that's a if if they can right because mm-hmm. yeah. the reality is your your lender is going to send you a renewal document and it's going to have an offer on it basically they're going to say here's here's you know the rates and you can check a box and they'll literally and send it back and they'll literally just renew your mortgage completely then if then like they don't have to underwrite anything they don't have to gather new income documents whatever if you want to make any changes if you want to change your amortization typically it's like a new mortgage right and so you have to go reapply you have to go submit your income documents and all of these things and if you're experiencing enough financial stress that you feel compelled to have to extend your amortization chances are you're not going to underwrite especially well so they're not you know and so you're you're reopening or you're opening up a can of worms that you might not want to open up. And so we should stress test our deals to make sure that they can withstand those interest rate increases. So we don't have to do that and you don't get caught in a shotgun position where you're screwed and you don't have options, right? You don't want to back yourself up against a wall by buying a deal that can't be resilient against the market. Um, Borrowers can also shift their mortgage term preference. Uh, this is interesting, and this comes from the monetary policy report. So recently, as short-term interest rates have increased, new borrowers have shifted away from variable and five-year fixed-rate mortgages toward fixed-rate mortgages with terms between one and four years. This suggests, and there's a chart in the in the report that shows this. I'll actually tweet it because it's a really good chart. Um, chart 3A. It suggests that many borrowers are assuming that mortgage rates will be lower in a few years. So again, this gives you a perspective on what the market is kind of pricing in on the consumer side. Yeah. I just want to jump in on this chart because I, I might make a little 
piece of content on this as well because it's fascinating. So there's a red line that marks the variable rate, a blue line that marks the one and two year fixed, a green line that marks the three and four year fixed, and a five year fixed represented by a yellow line. Let's just look at the red and yellow. Now, the red is a variable rate mortgage the f- and the yellow is a five-year plus fixed rate mortgage. So, the, remember, the five-year fixed was the most popular mortgage in Canada for a long time, basically until 2021, um, you know, until maybe halfway through 2020, we've started to see a massive drop off from like, you know, almost 50% all the way down to about 20%. Then on the other side, the variable rate, which was a little all over the place for the last several years, back in from 2017 to uh, 2020, it skyrocketed up to almost 60%. And then just probably by the looks of this in the last maybe eight months has now fallen off a cliff back down to that 20% mark. So, and, and we'll get into this because we've already talked about, you know, consumer behavior and, and consumer sentiment and just, you know, the way that the market can dictate that. And this chart's fascinating because it really just visualizes it. Um, any comments on that chart, Dan? You want to keep going? No, yeah, let's keep going. So let's talk about the substantial, substantial increases in borrowing costs. So since the first quarter of 2022, the effective interest rates on variable rate mortgages have increased four and a half percentage points, four and a half, and those on fixed rate mortgages by about half a percentage point. By the beginning of 2023, the effective interest rate on all outstanding mortgages has had increased by about one and three quarters percentage points for illustrative purposes only. So basically for fun, this is what economists do for fun. Bank staff constructed a scenario to demonstrate the potential impact on households debt service costs. Yeah, I love that. This is this is literally what economists super fun in the monetary policy report. They even say this is, you know, just a strictly like a an exercise for these guys to to put some stuff together. But I figured you'd probably love this, Dan, because you're a big chart guy. So let's go through this and, and talk about it here. Yeah, I also feel like it's actually not for fun. I think that they it's probably their job to know the answer to this question. They might have just yeah, said so that to not scare people. Um, fun might have been the wrong word. <laughs> In the scenario, the policy interest rate is assumed to follow the expected path for the overnight interest rate derived from financial markets on uh, April 4th. As a result, the effective interest rate on variable rate mortgages peaks in the first half of 2023. Meanwhile, the effect, effective interest rate on fixed rate mortgages rises through 2024 as mortgages with low interest rates reach the end of their term and are replaced by new or renewed mortgages with higher rates. This is what I was talking about. A lot of people having to renew their mortgages at higher rates. The rising interest rates will impact mortgage holders. In order to get a sense of how important rising mortgage interest rates are for the Canadian economy, it is useful to compare mortgage interest payments to aggregate disposable income. In this scenario, the the interest portion of household mortgage payments plateaus at about 5.5% of disposable income in the third quarter of 2023. That's chart 3B in the report. So before we jump over to the chart, let's just talk about disposable income for a second. Also known as disposable personal income, DPI, is the amount of money that an individual or household has to spend or save after income taxes have been deducted. Now, at a macro level, Disposable personal income is closely monitored as one of the key economic indicators used to gauge the 
overall state of the economy. So pretty important here. Yeah, and I think, you know, this would be the highest level observed since the late 1990s, which was not a good time for real estate as we addressed in episode one. So if you're a new listener, go back to episode one because we've been talking about real estate cycles and affordability and debt service costs since the very first episode because we knew that this was going to be thematic for the next several years. The portion of aggregate household income available for discretionary spending is about two percentage points lower than at the time of the first rate hike in early 2022. Borrowers may have may be able to mitigate some of these increased costs. However, their budgets will continue to feel the strain of these costs over the coming quarters. Okay, so let's let's chat about this chart here for a second, Dan. What are your what are your initial thoughts? We've got a red line representing interest only and a blue line representing interest and principal payments. I mean, I think it just goes in line with what I've been saying for a while here, which is that the you know, the Canadian economy is going to experience or feel a lot of strain as a result of household debt service costs continuing to rise for the foreseeable future unless rates come down very hard. And so, and, and it's kind of in a chicken and egg problem because it's like the strain causes us to go into a recession from my perspective. I don't think anybody from only in the analyst world is not um, believing that we're going to see a recession this year anymore. So, you know, so the, Rates being high pushes us into a recession and then rates, the recession pushes us into needing to reduce rates. So I think a lot of people who are cheering on rate cuts kind of forget what they're cheering on sometimes. Um, you know, a lot of realtors are like, Oh, rates are going to get cut by the end of this year. It's like, well, in a perfect scenario, monetary policy works exactly as intended and no, and we have a soft landing and no emergency rate cuts are required. And if you have a big rate cut, that means you have a bad economy and you don't want a bad economy. I don't think, but I personally don't want a bad economy. <laughs> it almost sounds cyclical, but that's crazy. Um, let's uh, let's keep this party going here. So just based off what you were saying, Dan, this is perfect segue into our next point here, which is low consumer confidence and reduced wealth are expected to restrain household spending for the rest of this year. Now, consumer confidence measures how optimistic or pessimistic consumers are about the state of the economy. Put simply, consumer confidence gives economists a window into how people are feeling about the economy. This is generally expressed in how they save and how they spend their money. So again, Dan, right? Same thing, chicken and egg. Like, you know, if the economy is bad, does that get into people's heads? And then does that happen or is it in people's heads that makes the economy bad, right? Vice versa. And, you know, again, can go in cycles. Once the economy starts getting better, maybe people start to change their spending habits, which then, of course, kickstarts the economy. But um, consumer sentiment is a powerful thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and growth in consumption is expected to pick up gradually over 2024 as the drag from monetary policy wanes and wealth recovers. So, you know, you start having less of this money put into debt service or people are adjusting to the new normal and increasing their savings rate. The savings rate is anticipated to remain above its pre-pandemic average because of elevated interest rates and precautionary savings. So remember, interest rates are also a policy tool to incentivize people to save more money, right? 
So if the if the um, central bank increases interest rates and in- interest rates increase at the banks, then all of a sudden people start putting their money into the banks, right? Because the the yield that they'd be earning is supposed to go up, and it is. You can see it on GICs and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so the elevated interest rates and precautionary savings could stimulate more savings. Now let's look at Canada's national savings rate, which is about 5.8 right now compared to 8.7 last quarter and 9% last year. This is lower than the long-term average of about 5.99. And just on a, just on a banking and and savings rate, did you see that Apple is now offering a savings account? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked me to do like um, a a piece of content on that. I just haven't got around to it, but. Um, Interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a national saving rate is the GDP that is saved rather than spent in an economy. It is calculated as the difference between a nation's income and consumption divided by income. The national saving rate is an indicator of a nation's health as it shows trends in savings, which leads to investment. Now let's look at a small section on housing here. So this chart, chart 15 in the report says housing activity remains weak. Yeah. So housing activity has been weak. We, we, we know this. We just did a, an episode on Korea stats and the drop in volume of transactions is crazy. You know, I mean, it's easy for people to act like, Oh, prices are going up. So everything's good. Well, it's not good because nobody can afford these houses. And so, and they especially can't afford these houses at this rate. So we're seeing sustained low volume right now. The bank expects that it will stabilize around the middle of the year. Growth in residential investment is anticipated to resume in the second half of 2023. Strong demand from immigration should support housing activity over the projection horizon. Now, remember, we are welcoming 500,000 immigrants per year. By 2020 until 2025, our population also grew by over a million last year. Yeah, now a good portion of that was um, non-permanent residents. And so a lot of those individuals rent, right? So in 2022, Canada welcomed 437,000 immigrants and a number of non-permanent residents increased by a net 607, 782 people. Both figures are the highest levels on record and reflect higher immigration targets and a record-breaking year for processing of immigration applications, StatsCan said. Now, I think it's important, again, to go back to the 90s because I do think, like I had said in episode one, that I, I thought that the setup for Canada's housing um, cycle to, to end was very similar to the 90s. I think the fact that we're seeing kind of like this first dip and you're almost seeing a bit of a bull trap forming, you know, makes me feel that even more a little bit right now. I do think we're kind of on that flat, like bottom portion already. But I think it's important to look at what happened from 1989 to 1994 on immigration. Um, and, and so... Basically, in 94, or sorry, in 89, that was the last time Canada's population growth hit 1.8, over 1.8%. And we broke that record for the first time in last year, 2022, Q2. Um, and then we smashed it after that. It was over 2%. But the point here is that it was a very similar setup. About half of the immigrant, half of the population growth came from non-permanent residents. Half of it came from immigration. Immigration continued to grow. Actual immigration, permanent people moving to Canada continued to grow from 89 to 94. But 
non-permanent residents continue, dwindled until about 94. So the, the population growth, the total population growth fell from 89 to 94. So you're going to see potentially more permanent immigrants, which could be people coming here to purchase houses because they're finally affordable again, but less um, people coming here for economic reasons like the job market or whatever it is, which would be more the non-permanent resident stream. So just worth thinking about what history can tell us about this the setup that we have for immigration saving the housing market today. For sure. And again, you know, history does not repeat itself. It rhymes. Dan, you came up with that, right? No, Michael um, Scott. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, again, completely agree, Dan. You know, the, the immigration numbers that we're seeing now do make us the fastest growing G7 country. I don't know if that is as great as it sounds because we know a lot of the other G7 countries are actually have have serious aging populations. Um, and no surprise here, immigration always seems to be the go-to default bull case for Canadian housing and the Canadian economy in general, especially when it's coming from any kind of government body, government organization, etc. So we'll see how this all plays out. But the real question here that I want to get to before we start wrapping up is, what does this all mean for investors? And I've got a few points and I want to, Dan, I know you've got some great anecdotes here as well. You know, for me, it, it, it just means that education is now more important than ever. Know this stuff, but at the same time, stick to your investment thesis and drown out the noise because again, you can't control consumer sentiment or monetary policy or volume of transactions, but you can control finding and executing good deals. I totally agree. Um, you, you were mentioning anecdotally, um, you know, Jordan Skrinko, who's going to be on the, on the show, I think, and he's been talking yes. about on the, on the condo side. Um, you know, he's seeing, he, he would, I think he's top three most searched websites for, um, for pre-construction in the country. Um, and he's saying, you know, he's starting to see an increase, nothing near like what it was before. And I talked to um, Jason Billingsley about this at our meetup, actually. So that the um, one of the uh, founders of Zolo, which is Canada's, which is actually Canada's biggest real estate website outside of Realtor.ca. Um, he was saying, you know, we are seeing a little bit of an uptick, like it looks like a spring market, but like the, you know, you know talking about that, ba- referencing that base effect that I talked about earlier on the opposite. So, you know, when things are really high, it looks you know, like it's really coming down year over year on inflation. But if things are really low, like February or March volume was super low, it, you know, it's not hard for a, a little bit of an increase to look really meaningful heading into April on price, on volume and on search traffic, which is what he was talking about. So he's saying, yeah, we are seeing a spring market. But if you look at April of a normal year, like 2019, it's still below that. It's way up from March, which was a 20 year low, right? And, but it's up, it's up, um, up from March, but down from a year. So you have to look at things in both a monthly context to see how they're growing in real time, but then also in a yearly context to see how they compare to the long term average. Well, what about you? You were driving past, uh, we're talking, uh, Jordan does strictly pre construction condos, but Dan, you were driving past a detached, um, pre construction development and like, there must have been like a hundred cars and people walking to the, like, you know, parking a kilometer away and walking in the rain to go place a bit on that. You can, what are your thoughts on, on that? Maybe you can do a better job explaining what you, what you saw. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, yeah, like, I mean, you explained it properly. Like there was about a, 
a mile long lineup of cars on either side of the sales office parked on the side of the road because it's in like a relatively rural area. There's a huge subdivision being built across the road from this, but on this side of the road, it's like this big sales office and then yeah. a farmer's field behind it. <laughs> and so the parking lot was full and it was like, I would say there would, you know, the average value of the vehicles parked in the parking lot and on the shoulder of the road would have been like well over $80,000. Yeah. It was a lot of G wagons and BMWs. It, yeah. And- so, I mean, it tells you a little bit about uh, like, the, you know, it communicates to me a couple of interesting things. So if I were to guess why people are rushing into pre-construction houses on the forefront of a recession, it could be because again, like, you know, thematically the inflation hedge portion of real estate is most supported when you're buying brand new. And if you're locking in a price and you believe inflation is going to perpetuate, um, you know, buying brand new is what makes the most sense because you're locking in a build price and then, you know, who knows the house will be built in a year, two years, three years, whatever. Um, and you're, but you're getting it at today's price. And if you think inflation is going to perpetuate, then it it should cost more to build a house next year. And the only thing you need to do that needs to happen for that winning and that to be a winning investment is the cost of building a house needs to go up more than the cost of land needs to come down. So as long as the inflation of construction costs outweighs the destruction of land value, which could happen in a recession or if the market continues to slide, then they they won. If if they're just buying for capital appreciation, which most pre-construction buyers really are, so that's like the mechanics of how that how that investment might, might work. Um, the other piece is that, and sorry, just the other piece that it tells me is that it, we're seeing a very clear K-shaped recovery, right? Rich people have money and poor people have way less money. So people who are wealthy have far more money than they did before the global pandemic and monetary policy. And they were able to take a bunch of that stimulus out of the economy. And this is where the central banks are really dealing with issues, getting that money back out of their hands. But people who were uh, worse off, the lower middle class or poorer people are more poor, relatively more poor than they were before. And so the economy, if you know, a K shaped recovery is basically a chart that's shaped like a K. So the Y axis is your vertical line. And then there's two lines coming out of it on angles. And the upper line is the wealth, people who are wealthy. And the lower line is people who are not wealthy. And the gap between them is growing. Yeah, no, great, great points. And the only thing I wanted to add to that is it's interesting because we know that, you know, I think you're, very ambitious to think anything's going to be built in a year. But, you know, it's interesting to line up what's happening with the mortgage market where we see all these one to three to four year mortgages and we see a rush back into pre-construction, which is usually a two to three to four year wait time. So, you know, it's really going to be an interesting spot in two to three to four years when all these pre-constructions are built and all these new mortgage, shorter mortgage terms are up. Um you know, at the end of the day, it's still the same old supply and demand issue. Uh, or for anyone that's ever watched Trailer Park Boys, supply and command, which actually kind of works a lot better uh, these days than supply and demand. Supply and command. Uh, just another random thing I love from Trailer Park Boys. Worst case, Ontario, which also seems to be a little more relevant these days. Getting two um, birds stoned at once. That's another good one. Mechanisms. <laughs> um, um, yeah, the last thing I would want to say is like, 
you know, in regards to the K-shaped recovery. So there's a couple of things. So number one is stress test your deals, guys. Like always make sure that they can withstand an increase in interest rate. Don't model your deal as if rates are going to go down or prices are going to go up. If the deal only works, if the investment only works in a declining interest rate environment, you're not a good investor. You, you know, you, you're it's, and it's not a good investment. Yeah. yeah. And same thing. If it only works with, um, a, a certain, increase in price. It's a speculation, not an investment. Um, and so stress tests against a variety of factors, unemployment, how, you know, rent people, if people lose jobs, they can't pay rent, right? Um, how much can interest rates go up? All of these things, build them into your model. And then the next piece is when I talk about the K-shaped recovery in a renter's economy, this is like, I'm, I'm pretty bearish, right? Like there's no, no secret to anyone. And I think a lot of people who <laughs> listen to me and who listen to the podcast might, might become bearish or maybe more cynical about the economy as a result of this. And they're like, but a lot of bears wait around for the market to be at its bottom. And then when it's at its bottom, they just saw this like absolute decimation of the economy. And they're like, Oh, now it's like, there's way more risk. Like then, then they never end up buying people. You know, they have this analysis paralysis as a result of being bears. The reality is what is happening in the economy. And this is like, it, when you see a K-shaped recovery, it's dividing the economy into two classes, whether you like it or not. I hate to say this because it sounds like bad. It's dividing it into the people who have the wealth and the people who, and, and very much are becoming a renter's economy, right? And you see, you've seen this happen in a lot of late stage capitalist economies. We've described it. We've done an episode on it. We've talked a lot about what this means. What this means is you are either the, the tenant or the landlord in a lot of these cases. It's like an evolved version of feudalism. It's not good. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but this is where a lot of these economies end up going. This, you know, and you hear there's a lot of political, like, and social unrest about these concepts, but the reality is, if you start seeing, if you're seeing trends toward this happening in New York, we are seeing it in North America. You have a choice now to, and, and that to me is the most bearish outcome for the Canadian economy, right? Is if it, if it ends up being divided like that. And if, you know, you, you get a decision now to be whether you want to be the person who makes money in that economy or the person who spends money in that economy consumer or provider of these goods with the good major good being housing. So ask yourself if you think we're heading towards that type of economic model. I personally do. And I personally think that seeing signs of G wagons lined up a bunch around, around <laughs> in front of a sales office while a bunch of people are struggling to pay their rent is a very strong indication that that's the direction that the Canadian economy is headed. And that's why I want to allocate my capital towards real estate to provide housing and especially affordable housing, because I think it's always going to be an infinite demand. So I think right now the long-term setup for being a landlord in, Can in Canadian real estate is exceptionally good. What a close. We are going to stop it there. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We hope you got a ton of value out of this. You want to reach out to Dan and I, there's an email in the show notes. Send us your questions, concerns, ideas. We're happy to hear them. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.